Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to the Nerd Party. Hello and welcome to another episode of Missing Frames. This is the podcast where we watch all the movies we should have seen by this point in our lives. I'm your host, Sean Eastridge. We're hanging out on the Nerd Party Network, a collection of podcasts dedicated to bringing you all things entertainment. Check it out at thenerdparty.com and make sure you're following us at Join Nerd Party on Twitter and the Nerd Party on Facebook and Instagram. I am so delighted after, at long last, really, this is what the world has been waiting for, bringing Brian Bittner from the Lessons from the Screenplay team back on the show after, what has it been? Like, it's been a year at least. At least, something like that, yeah. We did uh, Titanic initially, that was our first episode, Mm -hmm. and then you showed me, that was me showing you, and then you showed me being there, which was great, and uh, and we're back again. So we are going to be doing, I I tried to do this with with Trisha, and she wouldn't go for it because it was Christmas time, and she's like, well, I need you to see the 90s Little Women, and Mm. I was like, well, no, 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 I want to, with you guys, what we've done is... First and foremost, I we went through, I went with your co-hosts, Michael and Trisha and Alex, and I introduced you all to some of my favorite movies, and then we flipped it, and you guys introduced me to some of your favorite movies, and this time I was like, well, let's do movies that neither of us have seen, and Trisha, right, right out of the gate, ruined that plan completely, but you're here to set things right. That is our relationship, is, is she ruins everything, and I set it right. Perfect. So we're going to be doing a movie neither of us have seen, and this is Harakiri, the 1962 Japanese film directed by, what is it, Kobayashi? Masaki Kobayashi, which is one of the most beloved, not only Japanese films, but like I, we were going through, I think, IMDb and Letterboxd trying to find a movie that neither of us had seen. And this is not only in IMDb's top 250, but this is, I think, like, in the top five highest rated letterboxed films, which and it's like IMDb top 52, like not 250, right? Top 50, yeah. No, you're right, yeah. And it's, I mean, take letterbox with a grain of salt, which because Parasite is number one, which no offense to Parasite, but let's you know, it's been out for a couple of years, let's give it some breathing room before we declare <laughs> it the greatest film of all time. But, but in all seriousness, like this is a movie that's been on my radar, it's been something I've wanted to watch and obviously haven't gotten around to it, but that. Uh, is this something you'd heard of prior to like these ratings or is this literally like, Oh, let me mark this film that is on this list of the greatest. It's definitely a movie I'd heard of, but by heard of, I mean just seeing the title a bunch while looking at lists of, of great movies, you know? Um, And uh, so, yeah, I, I sort of, I'll take any top, 100 list or whatever with a grain of salt but what i like to do is sort of compare them so i i have on letterboxd i follow like four or five different lists and then i kind of look and see what's on every list what's really high on every list you know especially ones that i've never heard of or that i kind of have not really you know m- people my age aren't watching because it's some you know truffaut film from you know whenever um 
And, um, and then, you know, by that same token, what's only on one list near the bottom and not on any other list. Maybe that's one I don't need to worry about quite as much. And right. obviously it's totally subjective what movies I'm going to like or care about versus what's there. But I think there is sort of a, a film, uh, a film scholar kind of brain that makes you go, well, I should see all of, you know, X kind of movie or all of movies from this, um, from this list or, or the, take any one filmmaker and kind of choose their top three movies and, and yeah. see those movies. Um, which on that note, um, a couple of years ago in 2019, I think, uh, this movie club that I follow, they show, they screen 35 millimeter movies, uh, in Los Angeles and they did a Kurosawa, a year of Kurosawa basically. Um, and so we went to, uh, my partner and I went to, I think 10 different movies over the course of the year and we hadn't seen any of them before. So it was my first time seeing Rashomon and Ron and seven samurai. I feel and... like you and I first started talking around this. Like, I think you'd mentioned yeah, probably. you were going to go see seven samurai. Right. Cause that's, that's when I was going to see Titanic was that same right, movie club was right. doing it. Right. Um, and, uh, and then Ikiru, which became one of my favorite movies of all time oh, yeah, and high and low. Um, so one, I got to know a little bit about Japanese cinema from this time, you know, so we are talking about a movie who is not, which is not made by Kurosawa, but it is a samurai movie. It is from the sixties. It does star Tatsuya Nakadai, who is one of Kurosawa's, like he had, um, Tashira Mifune, uh, and Tatsuya Nakadai as like his two main go-to guys. And there was a few mm -hmm. other, um, the few, a few others who would come and go and be in lots of his movies and stuff, but those were the two kind of stars that he, that he had throughout his career. Um, so I had, I was very curious to check out other Japanese cinema from around this time, especially, you know, in the samurai world, um, which was not made by Kurosawa to see how it compares, yeah. what, what things are they doing differently, what things are they doing the same. So yeah, I'm excited to, to check it out. It is funny how Kurosawa kind of dominates this period in time. And rightfully mm -hmm. so. I mean, like, he's one of the greatest and his influence <laughs> ranges so far and wide. And it is kind of a similar feeling for me. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This period of time, these amazing films were being made. And Harakiri has such a reputation. And I have friends who have seen it and just talk about it with awe. But I've mm -hmm. never gotten around to it for whatever reason. And uh you know, other than Kurosawa, and I'm sure there must be something else in there that I've seen. Uh, but like the uh, the Zatoichi movies, have you seen mm. any of those? The Blonde no, I haven't, seen, I haven't seen those, but yeah, I've definitely. It's heard the of them. equivalent of, I guess, it's Japanese James Bond in a way, a long running mm -hmm. series with a title character. Those are the films that I'm most familiar with, Kurosawa and those films, which are great. But this is something that I've always wanted to see and has always kind of been lingering as something I wanted to check out and, of course, just haven't gotten around to for one reason or another. Um, do you have any idea what the movie is about? Have you looked into it at all? Have people told you? Do you want to try to take a stab at what the plot is about? Well, choice of words there. Uh, I, I know what the title means, which is, <laughs> yes. the uh, you know, so take a stab indeed. Um, uh, I, you I assume... deliver the great puns on this show. It takes me a Well, hang on. You delivered the great pun. So is it worse to, to deliver a pun on purpose or is it worse to not realize that you did it? Uh, tweet at Yay Shonderman and tell him. <laughs> <laughs> I uh I have a baby. I don't sleep anymore. These are my excuses. Are they good excuses? No. Take a stab at it. Yeah, I mean I mean all 
I assume that the movie is very deeply connected to seppuku harakiri, you know, the the, the Japanese, um, uh, I don't know what's the right word, not art, but but sort of like rituals of, of suicide because you have um, uh, dishonored, you know, yourself or your community or, or whatever it is. Um, how that plays into it, I don't know. Uh, so, I, yeah, I really don't know anything what, what the movie is about, but my Kurosawa brain, which again, it's not who made this movie, um, is, you know, it tells me that like, I'm, I'm going to be looking for really strong themes and a really strong parable. Um, because I feel like that's, that's something that Kurosawa was not, not ashamed to do the way that a lot of modern filmmakers, I think are ashamed to do is just to say like, this is a story about a, a thing about an idea. Um, and we are going to explore that through whatever this plot is. Hopefully the plot is also entertaining to you as just a, a movie watcher, you know? Um, but I think that especially when you have a kind of high concept thing, like the samurai space, um, then you, you can explore some very universal modern, you know, themes that any random white guy in 2022 can, can appreciate by looking at this almost magical fantasy realm of, of something that feels so from another dimension. Uh, right. as, as you know, so many of Kurosawa's movies do. There's a part of me that wonders, just based on what I know, and I've tried not to look too much into it, if this is kind of like, like I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think it's probably going to be more meditative than something like Seven Samurai. There's a part of me that wonders, you brought up Ikiru, like if this is more of like Ikiru, but in feudal japan like right. samurai and things like that like that kind of like that contemplation of what is life what is what makes life worth living this guy is obviously trying to commit this act and so devoted to it and is there as you said some kind of parable that is going to bring him about like reflecting on that and trying to determine whether or not there is more meaning or if there's honor in not necessarily going down that route um and i'm very very curious i i don't think it'll be it may be that simplistic on the surface. It probably is going to go much deeper than that. And so that's what makes me curious. And I am like, I, I've heard of the human condition as well, which mm -hmm. Kobayashi has made. Did, have you seen those? Either? No, no, I haven't seen any of his films, but, but I've also heard of those. Yeah. I hear those are fantastic as well. So I'm very curious to see in terms of like Kurosawa was always like, it wasn't that he, you know, films like Ikiru were, uh, all his films are entertaining, but some are obviously more contemplative and a little bit slower paced. And I get a vibe from this, that this is not going to necessarily be like action heavy. So I'll be surprised, pleasantly surprised, I guess, if there is like maybe something that is an equivalent to some of the action Kurosawa staged in his more fast paced films. But there's a part of me that expects this to be a little bit more reflective and a little bit more like, okay, sit up and pay attention because you're going to want to sit with this. It's going to be a little bit more of a tone poem than anything else. Yeah. I, I definitely think just based on, based on the title alone, that it's not going to be yeah. like a fun Yojimbo Sanjuro <laughs> type romp, you know, but, but yeah, real quick, you do raise a good, uh, a good point about, um, you know, Kurosawa the, sort of as a sliding scale of how much do I want to focus on, um, on really living in this, 
theme, uh, like, um, like Ikiru, um, versus the other end of the spectrum, which like a Yojimbo Sanjuro, which is like, we're just going to have a good time. We might explore exactly while we're here. Um, and then I think that some of the Kurosawa movies that are, are the most, you know, renowned are kind of somewhere in the middle, which is like the throne of blood and, and the, um, uh, Seven Samurai and Rashomon, which are like, mm. we're kind of doing both. We're going to have a good time. We're going to entertain you. We're going to give you some action, but we are also really kind of meditating on, on a theme, you know? So it'll be interesting to see sort of on that sliding scale where, um, the, the Hakiri falls, uh, sorry, Harakiri falls. Um, and, uh, you know, again, it's probably not going to be a fun romp, but will it be a <laughs> will it be sort of like a a action uh, theme blend, or will it be more of like a contemplative slow drama? You know, and that's where I just yeah. have no idea. And there's a part of me too that wonders because you know, in in every era, there are filmmakers who are all kind of rising up at the same time, and not necessarily competing directly with each other, but they're almost in conversation with each other. Yeah. So, I'd be curious once we've watched the movie and I'm able to look a little bit more into its production and its history and things like that. Like, is there, I mean, Kurosawa was like the guy making movies and especially like he'd kind of cornered the market of Japanese cinema. Is there a sense of rebellion against that style? Is there a sense of embracing it or honoring it? Like, that's what I'm curious about is how are these filmmakers speaking to each other? And specifically right. this is, since this is 1962, it's post seven samurai I guess it's right around Yojimbo. I, I don't remember exactly when Yojimbo was released, but I'm curious to see how this might have been affected or affected the work of Kurosawa and other Japanese right. filmmakers around this time. Yeah, I'll be but, interested to, to sort of do some research after I've seen it and kind of see yeah. where where it falls. I was just thinking the equivalent would be like if you know an alien came to the planet and was like, um, I was like, oh, I just heard about these Scorsese movies. So I've been watching all these <laughs> Scorsese movies, you know, like, and I like this sort of mod, this mob thing, whatever it seems like. That would be like an alien well worth hanging out with, like an right. alien invasion. And they're like, they come out and everyone's terrified. And they're like, do you guys have any Scorsese movies? And it's like, okay, I think we're going to get along. Right. Um, but if like that was that was their thing with like, oh, like I, I, he's the mob guy. So I've watched all the Scorsese movies and like, that's the mob thing. And then someone's like, hey, have you heard of the Godfather movies? And they're like, oh, no, what is that? Right. 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 So it's sort of similar where it's like, oh, it's this it's this very well thought of movie in this sphere. But we just know this one filmmaker who was so prolific, you know, Kurosawa, who made all these things and ignorant us is like, oh, we've never seen what's thought of as like one of the one of the best yeah. movies from, <laughs> you know, from this country and and era and genre. Um, but uh, but we know so much about the other like the guy who was the guy because again scorsese had this like long career whereas coppola kind of had this sort of five movie period where like very it was concentrated all, yeah. right and then everything else around that it, some are good some are not that good but he's not thought of as like oh you got to go explore we got to go do a coppola thon and watch all you know 30 whatever of his movies. Up, yeah 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 no that's a great example i uh now i'm genuinely excited i think i'm going to enjoy it and i'm really really curious to see the what it's all about so i say let's get to it and we will be back to discuss let's do it now available to own on video cassette say goodbye 
to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. All right, we're back. Brian, how do you feel about Harakiri? I feel really good about it. I loved it. It was sort of everything I wanted from this, you know, again, my only experience with this um, this era of, of Japanese filmmaking is Kurosawa. And, I, and as I said before we watched, I was like, I hope there's a really strong meditation on a theme. I hope it's entertaining. Um, and then one thing I was thinking while I watched it that I didn't think to mention was like, I hope the cinematography is amazing, which it always is with Kurosawa. And yeah, it's everything. It's just a really entertaining movie. It has a really strong theme that's very clear right from the get-go. But there's so much I don't know about this movie yet because I've only seen it once, you know? And like, yeah, I love that yeah. I, I want to watch it again tomorrow, you know? And, and just like really revisit it and really research it and look into it. It felt really ahead of its time with like yeah. the slow zooms and the two, three, five aspect ratio. Yeah, all the push, like the push-ins and stuff. Like the yeah, exactly. The like push-ins. Because Kurosawa has always been very... Uh, I guess Pretty horizontal static. with his framing. Yeah. yeah. Like it's basically like left to right where this was like very right. making use of that kind of depth of field and pushing in and giving right. that impending sense of. And you have that like doom. one dolly shot that goes from room to room, like through yes. the wall. And I was just like, yeah, 1962. Really? Like, wow. <laughs> um, and, uh, and the other thing I just loved was just, just such a strong mood, you know, right from the opening score, yeah. I was just like, Ooh, I'm, I'm in the mood of this movie. And then like, there's, there's, wind you know uh blowing on sagumo as he's sitting there you know in the yard and then like the wind gets you know builds more as the movie goes and i was just like man i love i love any movie that i feel like i can feel that just like feels tangible to me you know yeah um, i uh you know it's one of those amazing experiences that you always wish for when you're watching any movie where you're you're in the middle of it and you know you're like I'm watching a masterpiece like this is right. incredible. It was just that it hit me about halfway through and I was so enthralled by it. And it was so funny. Like you're talking about how innovative it was structurally. It's just crazy. Like it was mm -hmm. very, I was watching it. And the only thing I could think to compare it to, I was like, this feels a lot like, like Rashomon. And I was like, well, Rashomon yeah. is the, the easy example. And then I looked it up and I realized this is the same screenwriter as Rashomon. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. It's a, uh, what is his name? It's a, Shinobu Hashimoto. So uh -huh. he wrote Rashomon as well as well as other. I think he uh, helped Kurosawa write Seven Samurai and other Kurosawa films. But it was just there was that moment where it was like, well, of course, this has a very similar feel where it's like Rashomon is so focused on perspectives and not truths. It's like everyone has a subjective point of view that's going to tell this story. Right. This film has is touching on truth like nobody is necessarily skewing the truth or at least we're not being led to believe that um what we're being presented with is to be perceived as truth but structurally it works the same way as Rashomon where the flashbacks are pushing drama forward which is what the screenwriter uh, Hashimoto said he's like you know if you're pushing drama forward if you're pushing plot forward it's not really a flashback if you're revealing something about characters it's not really a flashback it's part of the story and i think that's what impressed me the most and the way those flashbacks kind of enriched the story and then 
throw you for a loop. Like every time something new is presented in a flashback, you're learning something new about the situation or what you thought was the case is not actually the case. And I loved that so much. Yeah. I I think that a problem with stories that do with movies that do flashback is even if the flashback is interesting, you're going, but the plot's not really moving forward. And it's like, I can like the flashback and I can find that story interesting, but I kind of am just waiting to see what happens next in the main plot. This is a movie where the flashbacks are the main plot. And that becomes more and more clear as you, as you follow the movie. Um, Did you ever see hero, the 2002 film with Jet Li? Yeah, it's been years and I loved it, but uh, yeah, I've only, I only saw it once way back in probably 2004 or five. But I remember so clearly the, the sort of meta plot of that movie, which is that he goes and he is talking to this, you know, again, I don't even know. I have seen the movie in so long that I don't remember who the guy is, but like some sort of clan leader kind of like, um, uh, 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 sorry, Shaito, um, Saito in this. And, uh, he, you know, and he's telling stories and every time like he tells his story, then the the guy is like satisfied and says, you may take a step forward, you know? And then yeah. as, as the plot moves on, you realize like, oh, he's here because he has kind of an ulterior motive and he's like very, and, and that, that clear, so clearly was inspired by this movie where it's, oh, where yeah, it's yeah. like, absolutely. You are learning more and more you, as you are hearing these stories, these flashback stories, you're learning more and more about the story world and the protagonist and what his motivations actually are and everything like that. So I, it just, it just struck me so much that it felt that it reminded me of that. But as you said, Rashomon, uh, obviously another one where it's sort of like, the entire movie, the entire like frame of the movie is people in a small space telling stories to each other. And exactly but then yeah. like that can, that can feel so epic based on, you know, based on what the stories are and based on how they all come together by the end. Exactly. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, the, the present day quote unquote, we're in a single location. So there yeah. is a framing device of this is a static piece of the story. We're kind of going to stay here. And that kind that helps as well, I think. Like, I think just subconsciously, when you're going into these flashbacks, you're in other locations, you're with other characters, you're a little bit freer. So you do get a sense of forward momentum that I think sometimes, like the problem you discussed of like a flashback really killing the momentum. And you're like, right. I want to know what the story is. Like, let's get back to that. And in this case, because of the fact that the main story is very contained to this one space, not a lot of move. I mean, these guys are sitting here talking to each other so that the flashbacks kind of become our escape from that quote unquote, not that it's like boring or dull or anything, but it is, I think in a way it becomes a brilliant way to uh, make those flashbacks feel even more imperative and necessary. Yeah. There's also a, um, there's also stakes established right off the bat, you know? And, And it's like, weirdly opposite stakes than most movies. Most movies are about a character trying to save their life. This is a movie about a character trying to like prove that he wants to end his life. <laughs> right. Um, but that, that gets us in this very primal like place where we are, we are very concerned with like this plot device, basically of, of I've, you know, this character shown up to do this thing. Um, but then it's like, are you telling the truth? Are you really doing this? Let me tell you a story about a guy who was here recently and we, we think he was, you know, full of it. And here's what happened to him. And it's like you understand every flashback is imbued with this um, 
with, with, with these stakes, right. Of, of like, we're not telling a story just to tell a story. We're telling a story to like prove a very important point that may or may not change the entire course of, of the next 10 minutes of your life or lack thereof. Yeah. And I think, especially as you were saying, like the stakes, it becomes so clear because we, as the audience are obviously Harakiri is a, a, Japanese tradition and maybe Japanese culture is much more familiar with that. But as a general audience member sitting down and somebody who doesn't understand, they very clearly spell it out. Like, here's what it is. And then we're watching it through the story of uh, uh, this uh, Chijiwa, I believe is how you pronounce his name. Chijiwa, yeah. But yeah, the uh, the son-in-law. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we don't know he's the son-in-law at first, but basically right. they're like, oh, you think you want to come do this? Well, let's Let's take just sit there and let me tell you the story of what happened to this other guy. And in excruciating detail, they paint this picture, this horrifying picture of essentially what you were saying. Like there is something that is like you are in danger. And if you're not committing to this, this is going to be a problem for you. And we walk through step by step as this guy basically is caught, quote unquote. Yeah. And we I mean, this is the brilliance of, again, the flashbacks imbuing all the the present day plot with emotion and subtext, because at first I'm watching it and I'm thinking, well, this guy is clearly trying to pull a fast one on them. And this is just painting a picture of what will happen to right. somebody who is try, like, you know, the idea of like, oh, you'll just go and you'll get a quick payout or you'll get a job or something like that. No, no, no. These people are not into that. They're going to actually make you go through with it. And then this guy has the bamboo sword and it's, it's utterly horrifying, but it essentially sets up like, okay, these are the rules. This is what is going to happen. And also it sets up the ruthlessness uh, of the villains and just like the heartlessness and just the brutality of everything. That sequence I mean, this is 1962. I don't know what you could compare it to today, but like I am stunned because it still feels. And when I t- the sequence I'm talking about is the the bam the bamboo yeah. harakiri scene, which is is so brutal. Uh, apparently, when the movie premiered at Cannes, like people were booing and fainting mm. and like very upset. Not surprising because even now that scene was painful to watch. Well, well, especially like that scene up until that point, the movie has not taught you that it is going to be gruesome, you know? So, so very much by design, Um, you could open the movie with some sort of like gory, you know, action scene or whatever and be like, Oh, this is going to be this kind of movie. But by design, the movie is like, no, no, we're not going to tell you that until we tell you that, you know? And then the third act really gets into it where, where the whole finale is like, Oh no, we're going to be gory and we're going to kind of have fun with this. But that scene, you don't know as an audience member, you don't know it's going to go where it goes until it goes there. And I think that's really cool. Um, I was wondering, uh, because I'd heard um, with Kurosawa that he storyboarded all of his movies. He would actually paint the 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 sort of shots basically. And then, and that's where, you know, so that's why his movies look so gorgeous is because Mm -hmm. he knew, months ahead of time before filming exactly what he wanted from this shot and this shot. Um, and I wondered if, uh, if Kobayashi wanted the same, you know, did the same thing. And I was Googling Kobayashi and storyboarding. And I found this interview clip about the, the bamboo scene that we're talking about. 
Uh, he says in the script, it just mentions that the character stabs himself in the stomach with a bamboo blade, but attempting to portray this in real images was an entirely different matter. It was very difficult. So the day before filming the scene, I still didn't come up with the storyboards and I went out drinking, you know, envisioning <laughs> storyboards is all about concentration and focus about pondering a question to which you have no solution. And suddenly you have a flash of vision. It's probably a similar process in music as well. Anyway, in order to stab your own stomach with a bamboo blade, you'd have to fix the blade very firmly onto the tatami, practically forcing your body down onto it in order for the blade to puncture you that was my insight once i saw that the surrounding images came easily of course i had been drinking which is why i guess i headed in such a, a brutal direction the storyboards i made when i was drunk were quite different from the ones i made when sober so i asked uh yoshio miyajama the cameraman which ones he thought were better and he said they're better when you're drunk and that's how i ended up with such a cruel scene <laughs> kobayashi masaki kobayashi master filmmaker Advice for all you budding young kids out there. Make sure you're drunk as you're working on your yep. storyboards. Cheers. The results will be spectacular. Uh, that's incredible. <laughs> I'm so glad you found that. <laughs> yeah, but it's like it does. It, I mean, as you said, the, the moment of brutality really, really sets you up. Like it kind of you kind of sit up a little bit straighter because we've been very meditative. We're kind of trying to figure out what's going on with the plot and the story. And that's a moment where you're just kind of like, oh, my God. All right. This is crazy. And then you've you've sat with that character in that moment. You don't know who this character is. You're just thinking like, oh, well, maybe this guy got caught. Maybe mm -hmm. nobody really deserves this, but maybe this guy was trying to pull a fast one on this this uh, this house. And then you learn who he is, his connection right. with the main character, uh, uh, Sugomo. And the fact that we have sat with his his son-in-law uh Chijiwa, and dealt with that and gone through that with him it just like it's it's heart-wrenching yeah it's awful and then you have to go through the entire tragic story and that's what some i mean you know kurosawa uh doesn't shy away from the the darker aspects of humanity and and suffering Mm -hmm. But not like this, not like this. I feel like Kurosawa sure. in general is more optimistic and there are exceptions like the bad sleep well and high and low, uh, which is not a, a entirely cynical film, but certainly there were cynical films that followed the release of uh, Harakiri that I think to me suggests that Kurosawa saw this and was like, oh, I better get my get my stuff together. But right. it, it, well, in general... Uh, Throne of Blood, who, uh, again, yeah. uh, Hashimoto was also the screenwriter on that. Um, that one, granted, it's an adaptation as is The Bad Sleep Well, but but that definitely in terms of Kurosawa feeling a little darker and, and a little more yeah. pessimistic, you know. But but I agree with you that more often than not, Kurosawa is feels like he is exploring a, um, a, a sort of a more of an optimistic state, or at least by the end, there's a feel like even Seven Samurai, it's like, spoiler uh you know all half of these guys died or whatever but like they did it for a reason right like yeah, we're like we yeah. feel good about or there's the fact there's a feeling in general of like uh despite the darkness or the evils of society there is a good person out there who can make a difference that right. kind of thing um which is not here this is this is a film that is utterly uh focused on human tragedy and and despair and the hypocrisies of uh you know, the whole thing is about dismantling this idea of samurai code. And right. this guy's mission is not necessarily to go in and 
kill the bad guy as revenge for for essentially quote unquote murdering the family murdering his family um but he goes in there essentially just to embarrass him and to prove the hypocrisies of this belief system that this guy espouses and it's very very again very different from kurosawa but like very effective yeah you know i i I like that I like that it was a movie where by the end, I clearly knew what the themes were, you know, what the theme was basically, which is just, as as you said, sort of the, um, the kind of tyranny and the futility of upholding a tradition just to, just because it's tradition, you know, to the point where regardless of how it ends, the bigger picture is, and this is why it's a pessimistic movie really is the big picture is nothing has changed because they just say, well, all our men died of illness and the guy who came to commit Harakiri did that. And, and nothing is different, you know? Um, And, and that's, that's the correct way to end this movie, obviously, because that's the point. Um, But uh, yeah, something Kobayashi said was all of my pictures are concerned with resisting an entrenched power. That's what Harakiri is about. Of course, I suppose I've always challenged authority. Um, and then I was also reading a, uh, like a more modern take on it. And they said at the time, uh, basically talking about the, the ways that Sugomo is, is kind of infiltrating this structure. And he says at the time, losing one's top knot was the same as losing one's sword and death mm-hmm. would be preferable to such dishonor. Thus the way Sugomo takes revenge is very subtle. He makes the clan live by the rules they claim to uphold, uh, in which they used to, to punish Motome. So basically saying like, if he removes their top knots and they don't kill themselves, well, then that's calling them out basically. Exactly. Because that's saying, exactly. that's saying like, well, if this is the code you live by. Then if I'm able to remove your top knot, then, you know, you bet you better do that. And they're, and they were like, well, maybe I'll just stay home sick for a few days, you know? And, and, <laughs> right, like that kind right. of thing. and so, so it's beautiful. It's something, it, it's the kind of thing you kind of have to research a little to understand what, what it's doing. Um, but I do like that. I like that the movie has those subtleties where you realize like he is, he's calling them out even before, even before he gets there. Right. Yeah. He's already calling them out and already sort of forcing them to say, if this is the code you live by, then let's see you actually live by it. And yeah. And don't. if you, if you, needs something to cling to in this kind of, I mean, the movie is brutal and it's very despairing, but if you need something to cling to, as far as like (laughs) any kind of beacon of hope, it's that it's that he did essentially this guy, even though he, he sacrifices himself, uh, he takes out a few guys, but essentially it's, it's a doomed mission. It's a suicide mission. It always Mm -hmm. was in the first place, but he, he does have the victory in that regard. His whole thing was like, I just want to be with my daughter and my son and my grandson and that's it and i don't yeah. care what like i just want to be here and also i want to mess you guys up real bad i mm-hmm. want to show you guys something that at the core you won't be able to forget even though history books won't remember it this is like a moment where i essentially upended the system i proved you wrong. right i defeated you without having to actually physically defeat you i did it and no matter what you do that will always have been the case um but that said i mean i say that as if it's like it's yes he did it but the film is like you said it's a it's pessimistic in regards to the it's not a scenario where like there is any sense of this being remembered by anybody there's like a little bit of a hint where like one of the top knots like somebody finds a top knot and tosses it into a bucket where i 
took that as uh, maybe this is suggesting somebody has evidence or proof of what happened here. And maybe that's a story that will live on. The whole movie is about telling stories, but I, I, I think that defeats what Kobayashi is, is going for. If you take that route of like, no, there's hope here. I think he is saying like the system is corrupt, but the system is all powerful and human. Who, what is humanity to try to right. change things? Did you ever see um, Arlington road? No. Um, it's it's a great movie with uh, Jeff Bridges and Tim Robbins and Joan Cusack and Hope Davis um, from I want to say about two thousand, um, and it, it it basically explores this this theme of here's what people don't want the truth necessarily they want to hear what they want what they want to believe you know and and sort of societies and how they operate that way and I was thinking about that movie this movie and the dark Knight, actually in terms of the, the sort of finale of those movies being like, well, what, what, what are we actually going to tell people? You know, I'm sure there are other examples of that. And this is almost like a reverse dark Knight, where the dark Knight is like, we're going to tell them that I'm the bad guy because that's better than telling them who the real bad guy is. And, right. uh, you know, and that's, so it's sort of like, it's a dark ending. That's an optimistic ending in the sense of like, we get to, people get to keep their hero. They get to mm. keep their, their, their white knight, Harvey Dent, but I'll be, I'll take the the hit for it. Um, yeah. And then this is kind of the opposite. This is like, Nope, sorry. You came and you messed stuff up and you inconvenienced us. But ultimately by, by the end, the, the greater world has not changed at all, you know, and you, yeah. you open and close with this beautiful image of, of the armor, the empty armor. Right. So it's, yeah. it's so yeah. ornate and it's so traditional yeah, and it and represents, it's, so, it's supposed to represent something grand, but it's, it, there's nothing. There's, there's nothing. Em- yeah, it's, it's totally empty inside. Um, so, so again, I love that. Like I love, I love movies. Like I don't need movies to have happy endings. I need movies to have important endings, you know, that, that well, that's, means that's, something. That is, imp- that's an important thing to remember. And I wanted to talk about the ending. I'm glad we're talking about it, but it seems like we're both on the same page where it's like, it, it's a horrible, brutal ending. When I say horrible, I don't mean like in the sense that it's bad quality wise, mm. but horrible where you, it does leave you with kind of a sick feeling in the pit of your stomach where you're like, ah, that, that really, you know, the third act is such a celebratory moment for, mm. I mean, it is the, the film has been contemplative. It's been like there have been moments of levity. Like I loved, uh, obviously, the performance of uh, of Nakadai mm-hmm. is so good. Yeah, and there are there are moments of humor where it's like, what are you going to do about that? What you mean this? And him drawing his hand across his stuff, like the thumb across the stomach. You're right. These little and you know, it is a role that I think was initially intended for Toshiro Mifune, and you can okay. see that. You yes. can see that. But I also like Mifune is great, like one of the greats. So I don't want to take any way, anything away from him. But there's a vulnerability to Nakadai's performance that I I don't I know Mifune is capable of. But I think in this role, he may have gone the gruff theatrical route where this role, there's a sense of brokenness right. to this guy that, I, again, not to take anything away from Mifune, but I do think there's something here that is so crucial to this performance. But um, in general, the film is, it's sad, it's contemplative. And then the third act is this celebratory moment that you almost want to be like, oh, 
he's going to kill everybody and escape. And this is just not that movie, but I wanted to, did you get that vibe? Did you want that? Like, were you feeling that at the end? Like you were like, I, I guess we, we root for the guy cause you want him to live. But did, did you know deep down you're like, this isn't going to happen. He's I mean, once he starts taking on, you know, the crazy 88s, I was like, well, there's like, forget about it. You know, he's not, <laughs> he's not getting out of here alive. Um, but I, no, I wouldn't say I had, I had big expectations for the ending. Um, I was just, I was so happy that it was, I was just so happy that it was coming together in, in any way, in the sense that like, clearly these filmmakers knew what they were doing. So I'm just yeah. like excited that we're there now. I'm excited that we are at the conclusion. Um, there's definitely a disappointment that he didn't have some master plan that won everything right. Where he got to walk away victorious and do the, you Yojimbo, want him, when, when you know? He, yeah. <laughs> when he, when he walk when he walks into the room, like when he's stumbling through the room and he sees the guy sitting there, like the head of the house sitting there, you want him to take that guy out. You just want that right. moment of him rushing up to him, chopping off his head, something like that. And you don't get it, but the film's payoff. It, it's almost like it doesn't need that. Like it's again, that's the antithesis of what this film is trying to say. Right. And as much as you might want it, it's a film that is so good at telling its story. Like you said, the execution of that final act is a major payoff for this entire movie where we've been sitting and, you know, we've been, told a story not just in the sense that it's the filmmaker telling us a story but it's these characters telling us the stories too and you just want to feel after all this sadness all this tragedy all this defeat that this guy is going to get something on them so when you have this whole montage this whole sequence of him meticulously like you know embarrassing these three samurai taking Mm. out their top knots and uh you know having that victory and then like you said, the Kill Bill moment of just him taking on everybody. And you know, because the way it's framed, it's like this guy, it's not a heroic thing. The guy is desperate. And right. He's taking guys out, but it's not like the bride taking on all these people. You just yeah. know it's not going to work out. But in a way, you know, even though it subverts the expectation of what that ending you might want for this character, it doesn't ruin the movie in the sense that I didn't feel robbed by the way it played out. It was still satisfying, even though it was such a really such a, a downer of a, of a movie. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there are, there are two reasons you are satisfied by the ending of a movie. You're either satisfied because the protagonist, you know, the characters that got what they wanted and that makes you happy, or you're satisfied because regardless of whether or not the protagonist got what you want, you as a film watcher are satisfied because you understand thematically what the film was trying to say, you know, um, no country for old men or this, Mm. or, you know, plenty of other examples. Like you, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be a happy ending for you as the film watcher to go, man, you did it. Like you, you, you proved your point with this unhappy ending, but like, I am satisfied watching it because I get exactly why you did everything that you did. Yeah, and I, uh, I I thought it was I wanted to look it up because we talked about it a bit. Like, how did Kurosawa and Kobayashi like? Did they have any actual interactions? What mm. was that sense? Was there a sense of rivalry there? And it sounds like something like it was like a playful rivalry in a way. But mm. at the time, as we discussed, this was the year after Yojimbo came out, and then Sanjuro came out. I think the same year as this film. But mm-hmm. it was clear like Yojimbo is is 
entertainment. Like it's fun. It is. Some people see it as more frivolous as far as Kurosawa's filmography goes, but it's a great movie and it's a fun movie. And I think Kobayashi went into Harakiri specifically. He said uh, uh, the quote was he wanted to challenge Kurosawa because he Mm. saw Yojimbo and was saying, oh, so he's doing that. He's doing the more crowd pleasing kind of tongue in cheek, black humor. I want to make this deadly, deadly serious movie that's the opposite of that tone and it is fun like i just was like well let me see where kurosawa went after 1962 the Mm -hmm. year that harakiri was made and you have 1963 he did high and low and then red beard which i don't know if you've seen but that was a couple years later and that's very slow very contemplative Mm -hmm. and then after that it was then it was five years until he made his next movie which is a i'm gonna butcher this i can't say that I'm going to stop trying because yep, I'm just, but I, I know the movie myself. you're talking about, <laughs> you know, what the, you know what I'm talking about, Yeah. but this is all to say, like, if you wanted to look for how did Kurosawa take this, there's certainly a sense you could make the argument based on the films that followed. They're much more cynical, like mm. high and low red beard, all these films, Kagamusha, Ron, like these are dark, dark movies. Um, you get the sense that maybe, there was like, oh, I was doing this kind of more entertaining, frivolous samurai film that's you know fun and great, but not like deadly serious, not like exposing something about humanity in the same way that Harakiri was. Um, but yeah, I would I wouldn't say there was like a big change because pre Harakiri, you know, Kurosawa was making Throne of Blood and you know Seven Samurai and that, that kind of thing, like. Um, but uh, but I think that what was interesting, what I noticed about Kurosawa, um, while sort of a couple of years ago going through his a lot of his films, was I found that my favorite movies of his were his contemporary movies um, like Ikiru and High and Low. And by contemporary, I mean set in the modern day at that time, right. um, because I felt like those were very clearly meditating on a theme. They, they were just like, here's a theme and like we're going to show you we're going to tell you in the first. 15 minutes what the theme is and we're going to explore that for the entire movie um whereas some of the samurai movies you know jimbo sanjuro uh hidden fortress they, they felt a little bit more like you were saying a little more like their entertainment they're here yeah. to kind of have you know and that doesn't mean i'm sure people are screaming right now being like oh my god there's so many themes like <laughs> i'm sure there are but they don't the, the movie doesn't point them out at the at the top um you know the, the way that that those other movies do Rashomon is one that clearly does, you know, that very clearly right from the get go, it has a very clear theme. And then by the end, you feel like you understand what the movie was trying to say. Um, But I think that why I like uh, Harakiri so much is because it felt like it was doing everything. It felt like it was being an entertaining samurai movie and being like Ikiro or high and low sort of saying like, we are going to, or Rashomon, we are going to kind of explore a theme. We're going to tell you what it is pretty early on. And then we're going to, to meditate on that for this entire movie, but we're also going to have a lot of fun along the way. And that, that was, that yeah. was great. I'm really curious to check out Kobayashi's other movies. Like I think this yeah, is same. absolutely, this is something where I'm like, Oh yeah, I've, I, this guy has been a major missing frame in my life. Like mm-hmm. Samurai Rebellion, which I'd heard of. And I know Mifuni's in that. Um, right. Quite on, which I think is a, like a horror movie, not quite a horror movie, but it's like his first color film ghosts like short stories about ghosts and stuff i mean Mm. i'm all up for it and then of course the human condition and just talking about like 
the letterboxed rate rankings for these films. And I think the human condition and this film, Harakiri, as we discussed, they're both in the top 10 highest rated uh, letterbox films. I don't, mm. don't have the list in front of me, but these are, after watching this, I am so curious to dive into these others and really look at it. I know human condition is like each, there are three of them. Yeah. Each one is like three, four three hours. hours long. Yeah. <laughs> but hey, you know, and I'll, it's I'll like, like it. Lord of the Rings, it basically, it's considered like one film in three parts. So yeah. both this and both human condition and Lord of the Rings are basically like considered a nine hour movie that are, are, but like are broken down into a trilogy of <laughs> very long individual movies, which yeah. together make a very long <laughs> collective. Movie. And human condition is before Harakiri. So I'm just very curious to see like, what what can you learn just from that? What ideas did he take on to Hari Kiri and what was perfected in that? Or is it completely different? Like, I'm right. so curious to explore that stuff. Um, is there anything as far as what are the standout moments for you for Hari Kiri? Is there a favorite beat, a favorite moment, a favorite line that is what you'd use to sell the movie to somebody else? Uh, I, I do... Yeah, I mean, standout moments. I would say it's certainly the the bamboo harakiri, just because <laughs> you know it um, it does so much. Like it, it does a sort of like it's entertaining in the sense of like you're on the edge of your seat. Yeah, um, and it's the movie like holding back gore and then using that moment to show you it's going to be a gory movie. And it's like it is that sort of thematic thing of if this is your code, if this is the way you want to live, then you better show me this is how you want to live, you know? And unfortunately for Chijiwa, he, he was trying to do the best he could as we learn later. But in that moment when he is just this stranger who we're pretty sure is lying and is just trying to get out after having gotten room and board for a couple of nights, then there is that feeling of like, yeah, like you, you know, you don't even have a real sword. Like, let's see you do it, you know? And, and yeah. I think like that, so that's kind of like the movie operating on all cylinders at once. Um, and then I don't remember specific lines, but I do think a lot of um, a lot of the like restatement of the theme in the third act about the samurai code being a facade and all that kind of stuff. Like there were just some really lovely lines there that, again, feel feel universal. They feel like any anybody, you know, whether it's whether it's political arguments in 2022 or whatever, like you can you can say one of those lines to them and be like, oh, you think that you that is your code? OK, yeah. then what yeah. about X, Y and Z? You know, and then one other thing I want to say, which was just um, not a not really moment, but was, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Tetsuya Nakadai's performance, um, because it was it's interesting to see both him and Mifune to sort of have um, gotten to know them over the course of the films that I've seen them in. Because Mifune, the first few films I saw him in, uh, Rashomon and Seven Samurai, he's like the crazy guy, you yeah. know. And then, yeah. and then even in Yojimbo and Sanjuro, he's like the um, uh, the cool guy. And then, but then it's great to see him in something like High and Low and go like, oh yeah. no, you absolutely you can kick ass as a dramatic actor when that is what's called, the, you know, that's that's what your role is. You're not always trying to cartoon it up. You just know that those were movies where that was what you was expected of you. Right. Similarly, Nakadai, um, he, the first things I remember him from is, uh, or Yojimbo and Sanjuro. He's the bad guy in both those movies. And especially in Yojimbo, he's like, 
he's like, I have a gun. And he's like the one guy who has a gun and he like, doesn't know how to hold it. And I can't tell if that's like, because people didn't know how to hold guns yet, or because like, that was kind of a character choice of like, of like, I'm trying to be badass, but I don't even know how to hold this thing. Um, And then, um, but then like a movie like Ron, where he's so unrecognizable because he's under all that makeup, you know, as, as the King basically. Um, so I was kind of like, ooh, but when I heard that he kind of became Kurosawa's go-to guy after he and Mifone kind of split ways, I was like, really? That guy? He's kind of funny looking and he always plays like weird stuff. But then again, high and low to see him as a detective and go like, oh no, you can play like you can play like straight when you need to. This, I think, finally was my was my aha moment for him. Mm-hmm where I think one reviewer even re- referred to it as a Mifune like performance in the sense yeah. that like he is this very stoic, very quiet leading man. And it's like, yes, I've seen you in many movies, but this was the one where I went, Oh, okay. I get it. Like I, th- I think in this film, the rage is yeah. very Mifune. Like, I think that's yeah. what a lot of people are seeing, seeing not just the beard, not this, just the, uh, that kind of like, you know, mm, Oh, like that. Kind yeah. Of yeah. Wise thought. Well, like he's got the, he's, got the upper hand on everybody but that that just primal rage of somebody who is so determined and so like at the there's no reason to live anymore except to exact a particular kind of revenge on his enemy right um and then uh, i i didn't mention in the first half but takashi shimura is is uh the, the lead nikiru and is in a whole bunch of kurosawa movies like he's someone who right off the bat i was like oh i love you i love you so much i want to see you and everything whereas both mifune and and nakadai was like a little bit of like okay you're good at this one thing but can you do it you know <laughs> so it was, it's, it was nice for mifune and then now finally with nakadai to be like okay you you really can do everything <laughs> like you can do whatever right, is right. asked of you you just know the different movies ask a different thing of you and and you know you know you know when to hold back and when not to hold back i i think my favorite line is uh him when like he is basically explaining the situation but then he's saying no i i will I think it's after he has basically said, no, I knew that guy, but I still intend to commit Harakiri. And he says, I will disembowel myself in grand form. <laughs> and he says it with that big booming voice. And I right. just thought, what a, what a great line. I will disembowel myself in grand form. <laughs> and then the other, uh, my other favorite moment, one of my, I, I think the entire third act, um, it felt a little bit like, like uh, a, a modern movie that it brought to mind was Whiplash, where Whiplash is mm. so like intense and dramatic and dark and and almost a tragedy. And Harakiri obviously commits to the tragedy, but then Whiplash has this incredible climax where the hero basically, quote unquote, wins, or I guess, you know, depending on how you look at it, but essentially has that moment of victory. That kind of is what this reminded me of. The third act felt very similar in terms of payoff, like the kind of jubilation of like the moments of him going after each of these guys. But I can't remember, it may have been the third guy, but whatever it was, when when the guy comes into his cabin, and is like, all right, yeah. you're going to meet me at this place because I can't swing my sword. I'm going to hit the column. I'm going to hit the banister. We've got to go to this place. And then they're walking through this incredible graveyard. Mm. It just looked, I mean, speaking of the cinematography, it was just stunning. And then they're going through these bamboo trees. And then they're outside in this field with like the wind blow. I just remember like, I I think the moment I knew I loved the film was when uh, when the the main character revealed 
like, oh, I knew that guy. And I was like, "Uh oh, oh, snap, this is going. I thought I had I thought I knew what was going on. Now I don't. And now I have no clue what's happening. This is great. But that just that entire third act and the way it pays off, even though it ends with his death, the way it pays off with just him taking on this entire army was just it was so, so great and fulfilling and especially after so much tragedy and sadness in the film to have that kind of just that brief moment of of pure like entertainment and jubilation was really really fantastic yeah this movie and whiplash you know they're both movies where they're so strong at the beginning that i think that it's easy to watch those movies and kind of in the back of your head being like please continue to be this good because yeah, how many yeah. movies have you seen where the first 30 minutes you're like, this is the best movie I've ever seen. And then by the end, you're just like, that was terrible or that was fine <laughs> or whatever. And and this is a movie where the third act pays off in like such a, such a different way than the first, than the movie is sort of like training you to, to expect, you know? Um, that was in the but, back of my mind. It's so funny you yeah. bring that up because that was in the back of my mind. I was thinking, like, I was like, this is such an incredible, like, I'm so enthralled and engaged in this film and just... Try, you know, when I'm watching a film and I'm really into it, I'm trying not to think too much in a technical sense. Like yeah. I'm not trying to break it down. I want to just, you know, feel immersed in the film and let it wash over me. But there, in the back of my mind, I was thinking that I was like, how are you going to pay this off? Like, I wonder, like thematically, uh, emotionally, how can you possibly get this to pay off? And it's a film that's going to be great to revisit and look at from a structural sense, from a screenwriting sense, from a storytelling sense of like, Here's how you plant the ideas. And especially, I mean, just the cool structure of it in general, the flashbacks and how those enrich the film rather than slow it down or bog it down. But like, I can't wait to revisit it and kind of study it in that sense of just like how to reach like a really satisfying and exciting conclusion that's maybe not, as you said, uh, satisfying in the sense where the hero gets the victory, but is satisfying on every other conceivable level. Yeah, I mean, I think a problem with a lot of modern movies um, is the action movies and superhero movies especially is like by the beginning of the third act, you already know everything. Like, you know everything. So now you're like, well, now we just have to wait for 30 more minutes for like everything to happen that we know is going to happen. That (laughs) doesn't mean there aren't going to be twists. Right. That doesn't mean, you know, like who's going to survive and who's not and that kind of thing. But you have a general sense of like, I understand everything. And now I'm just kind of like on cruise control, like coasting through the rest of the movie. Um, And, uh, and, and this, this is a movie where you're still learning new information in the third act. You don't know how it's going to end. You don't know how you want it to end. Mm-hmm. Like, like there, there's so much that it's sort of like is holding on to, uh, to then deliver. So that way the third act still feels fresh and exciting. And it like, it is, it's delivering on the things you knew you wanted to happen for quite a while, but it's also introducing new ideas and, and sort of like keeping you guessing, keeping you on your toes. And I think it will, on rewatching, even though you know what's going to happen, it'll still sort of feel like it's exciting to watch characters learn things for the new time for the first time. Even even if you already know what that thing is, it's still yeah. like, ooh, this is the part where the guy the guy finds this out. Like I'm excited to well, watch. Yeah, that. and watch. I mean, rewatching the first act is going to feel completely different. Like right. Just watching oh yeah, scene it's going to have. Uh, that. You know, it was already painful enough watching the act of the the bamboo sword, but like now knowing the emotional oh, yeah. context it's gonna be heart just heartbreaking and heart-wrenching right. but uh you know it, I, another moment i really loved is the when when he's tossing the top knots out and mm-hmm. he says i i labeled them just 
just in case you needed. <laughs> he labeled the top knots. Right. It was just great. All these like little again, like the film is not it. It doesn't wallow in in tragedy, even though it is a tragedy. But there are these moments of levity that really kind of keep yeah. feeling. Uh, he, he's the anti hipster hero that we need in, in <laughs> you know today. He's just cutting off yeah. top knots. Like, no. There, <laughs> So I guess uh, anything else? Any other final thoughts on Harakiri? Any other moments we need to touch on? No, I'm, I'm glad we hit everything that I that I wanted to talk about because there's there's a lot to unpack with this movie. And you know, again, this is uh, we've just seen it once, and so it's like yeah. I I love any movie. It doesn't happen a lot today, uh, but I love any movie where I I'm just excited to go back and revisit it. Maybe I won't for two years. Who knows? But I'm just like I'm going. I'm like still thinking about it. I'm going to be thinking about it in a couple of weeks, and then whenever I revisit it, I'm going to be really excited to jump back in. Same. So I guess uh, for final ratings, let's just do top knots. We'll do uh, how oh. many how many top knots would you give Hatakiri with one being the lowest and five being the highest? I mean, it's got to be five for me. Like, I, I don't know. Same. Yeah. yeah. I, I, what else could you want from this movie? Agreed. At five top knots. I uh, 100% everything you said. I, I can't wait to revisit it. I'm really like, what, nine hours of the human condition? I'm into it. Let's do <laughs> yeah. this. I'm like jumping. I'm jumping in tomorrow. I need this in my life. But uh, this has been great. Such a great suggestion. I'm so glad we got to watch this movie for the first time together. And, yeah, same. Uh, I had a blast. So, Brian, tell the good people who are listening where they can find you if they want to hear your sultry tones elsewhere. Where, where do they go? Where do they go? Uh, the main the main place to find us right now is Beyond the Screenplay, which is our podcast. Uh, we talk about a different movie every week. Um, and uh, I'm on Twitter at, uh, at Brian Bittner. And you can find me at Ye Shondor Man on Twitter. You can find me on Letterboxd, Shondor Man 05. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you again, Brian. Can't wait to have you back. And we will see you at the movies. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.